I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17 as we continue our verse-by-verse study of Acts. While you're turning there, may I remind you of something that I was thinking about this morning. The Word of God has made it very clear that what I am to do when I come before you is to preach the Word. In fact, John Piper has said, and I quote, the pastor's authority is one that is sent by God. And he says, our authority as preachers sent by God rises and falls with our manifest allegiance to the text of Scripture, end quote. And so when we come to a time like this, may I remind you that we do an exposition of the Word of God. We come to the Word and, and we actually open up our Bibles and we look and see what the Word says. And the assertions that I make must be explicitly and manifestly found in the text. That's why very seldom am I going to point you to the words of others to validate something that I might say, but rather to take you to the text. I don't want to just read a passage of Scripture and then kind of get the sense of it and then wander around a bit aimlessly telling you kind of what I think about it, but rather I want to show you chapter and verse. That's why I love to see you with open Bibles so that you open up the Word of God and you put your finger on those verses and you see, oh, here's where it says that. And as we do that, then my role is to explain it and to help apply it and even to exhort you to obey it. Because what we must remember is that It is scripture that is inspired by God and that is profitable, not the words of the pastor. It's interesting that in the sermons of Jonathan Edwards, you will search in vain to ever find a joke in twelve hundred sermons. And the reason for that is because this is a very solemn time. It's not to say that there aren't things that we say at times that aren't humorous. In fact, when I listen to my own sermons, I find things that are humorous. But the point is, this isn't the comedy hour. This isn't a time to be entertained. This is a time to humble ourselves before the preaching of the word of God, that the spirit of God might conform us ever more into the image of Christ. It is my passion, therefore, to stir you with the glories of heaven as well as remind you of the horrors of hell. Dear friends, the souls of men and women really lie in the balance on a Sunday morning when the Word of God is preached. And so, with that in mind, we come to the text of Scripture in Acts chapter 17. And I want to read it to you and then begin to unveil it to you so that you can see what God has for us. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 16 of Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. 
So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was teaching, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Here, dear friends, we are reminded of an astounding truth, and that is that God, who is considered to be unknown by many, certainly by these Athenians, is one who is knowable. He is a God who has condescended to our lowly estate. He has revealed himself to us through creation as well as through his word, and therefore he is knowable. 
And therefore, I have entitled my discourse to you this morning, a God who is knowable. Now, such a fact is simply inconceivable. Indeed, most do not believe it. To be sure, most religious people like the ancient Athenians worshipped this unknown God in ignorance, not in spirit and in truth. And even we as believers at times can take this for granted and lose our sense of astonishment. Therefore, I want you to join me for a moment and reflect upon some incredible truths that will help us see the transcendence of God, the otherness of God, so that we can contrast that with the way he has chosen to reveal himself to us. I want you to gaze with me into the midnight sky for a few minutes and reflect upon creation and the creator. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 19:1 that the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Now, rational and reasonable men have acknowledged this fact throughout history, that when you look into the heavens, you see the handiwork of God. Heavens tell of the glory of the creator and the solar system really declares the works of his hands. And what is fascinating is that modern astronomers and astrophysicists and astrobiologists and even philosophers are increasingly dumbfounded as new satellite technologies allow them to behold our solar system more up close and personal. The spectacular images transmitted back to them through the satellites, however, do not reveal some chaotic sea of random stars and galaxies. They do not see the earth, therefore, as just another speck of dust adrift in a vast cosmic sea. Instead, what the scientists see and what we all can now see as we also behold the pictures is intelligent design. We see purpose. We see uniqueness, significance. We see in the earth a planet unlike any other in the solar system. I was recently watching a documentary, a DVD that I would encourage you to get. It's entitled The Privileged Planet. And there I was reminded of some of these truths. For example, in 1977, there were twin spacecrafts that were launched from our country and they were christened as Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And eventually, over the years, they broke free from our Earth's gravitational pull and they probed our neighboring planets. And in the, the course of their journey, they have transmitted back to us thousands of pictures. And perhaps the most memorable one was one that was sent on February 14th, 1990. As Voyager 1 approached the far edge of our solar system, it turned and took its wide angle camera and pointed it back towards its point of origin, namely back towards Earth. And what is fascinating, and I would encourage you to see the picture yourself, is that amongst the, the, the millions of 
images that you see there, you will see one that glows. It's a pinpoint of light. And that is Earth seen from four billion miles away. An absolutely stunning photograph. Now, it would take years to communicate to you the marvels of what scientists have learned about our Earth as they look at these pictures that come back. But let me share with you but one that boggles the mind and points clearly to the glory of God, to the transcendence of God, to the omnipotence of God, to our Creator God, and thus again, allowing us to contrast His transcendence with the fact that He has made Himself knowable to us. Consider the perfect solar eclipse. Something that we've all seen, but I fear we have all taken for granted. I know I have. I have discovered, as I've read and seen various things, that scientists can predict when a solar eclipse will occur within one second. And there are certain requirements for a solar eclipse. And that is you have to, first of all, have a luminous body, and that's the sun. You have to also have an eclipsing body, which is the moon. And then you have to have an observable platform, which is the earth. And all of these must line up in a perfectly straight line. And yet think of what it must require in order for the earth and the sun and the moon to do this. Because realize that the earth is orbiting around the sun and the moon is orbiting around the earth. Try doing that with your hands around a basketball as if it were the sun and get them all to line up, especially when you realize that the sun is 400 times bigger than the moon, yet it is 400 times further away. And yet when the sun or when the moon eclipses the sun, it does so absolutely perfectly. And what is in Exceedingly amazing when we think about this, scientists have determined that the factors necessary for habitation on a planet, in other words, for a planet to support life, those factors, those requirements are the same as those necessary for a total solar eclipse. Because the gravitational pull of our moon is strong enough to regulate the Earth's climate by stabilizing the tilt and helping to circulate the warm and the cold waters of our oceans. And likewise, our distance from the sun permits liquid water and an oxygen-rich atmosphere. And here's what I want you to understand, dear friends. We could not survive on this planet unless the earth and the moon and the sun were perfectly aligned and sized to produce a solar eclipse. Moreover, eclipses allow us to observe as well as to measure the constituents of the upper layer of the sun's atmosphere. It's called the chromosphere. And there they have, during a solar eclipse, been able to see the sun's atmosphere and what they call the flash spectrum of light, considered to be the single most important source of information about our star. 
were it not for the ability of us to have an eclipse, we would have never been able to see this. And what's fascinating is that the moon, once again, fits perfectly over the sun, shielding its blinding light, allowing astronomers to study the star's atmosphere, which would otherwise be impossible to even see. And if the the moon was slightly smaller, it would allow too much light and therefore it would make it impossible for them to see the flash spectrum. If the moon was slightly larger, it would partially block all of the view of the sun's chromosphere and therefore diminish the spectral light. And so it's got to be the perfect size at the perfect distance at the perfect time. This is the key to understanding astrophysics. Many discoveries have resulted from this, including this discovery of helium. You think, well, what's the big deal? What have they discovered? Helium, for one thing, which is the second most abundant element in the universe. Eclipses have allowed physicists even to verify Einstein's theory of relativity. And frankly, the implications of these discoveries that have come about because of an eclipse and all that we have learned because of that are absolutely incalculable. And bottom line, what I want you to understand is that the same requirements necessary for our planet to be one that can be inhabited, that can sustain complex life forms, are those necessary for a total solar eclipse. And this requirement, along with many others, has not been found anywhere else in the known universe. What an amazing coincidence. Well, the question we must ask is, why is it that our planet's precise location within the solar system and the Milky Way galaxy is the only place suitable for complex life? Why is that? We must ask the question, why is it that this is the only place where its inhabitants can observe and understand the universe? A man by the name of Guillermo Gonzalez, an astrobiologist, says this, and I quote, The most habitable places in the universe also offer the best opportunity for scientific scientific discovery. I believe this implies purpose, end quote. Absolutely, it implies purpose. And isn't that what the psalmist has said? The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. And yet we see the glory of God. And that text in Psalm 19 goes on to describe how that God reveals his character Not through his creation, but through his word. Beloved, God has revealed his glory to us through his creation. And he has revealed his character and his plan and his purpose through his word. This is amazing to me to think that our God is knowable. And it was this very truth that in that the inspired apostle used to reach the pagans there in Athens and millions ever since down through redemptive history. Now, I want 
you to focus on three categories of observation that I believe emerge from this historical narrative here in Acts 17. We're going to look at, first of all, the blasphemy of idolatry, secondly, the nature of God, and thirdly, the revelation of God. And here, the Holy Spirit has much to say, first of all, to those who have yet to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior as Lord, Savior and Lord, as well as to those of us who know and serve him. Now, let me give you the context. Remember, in Acts 17, the first 15 verses, Paul has fled from Thessalonica and Berea, and he has arrived now in Athens. He has summoned Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. And as Paul came into this glorious city of that day, he would have seen remnants of what would have once upon a time been a great imperial city of the Grecian Empire, a land conquered by Alexander the Great about 350 years earlier. Many of the great buildings, the great edifices would still be standing, even though they would show some ruin. There would be the Temple of Ares and and Zeus and Apollo and Hephaestus, and there would be the, the Grand Stoa, which is a, a portico um, of, of Attalus, which was really a magnificent promenade, a meeting place that stretched across almost the entire eastern side of the Agora, Agora being the marketplace, the public square. And in the center of the Agora stood the Odeon, which was the music hall of Agrippa that would seat about a thousand people. There would have been the altar of the twelve gods, considered to be the very center of Athens. And then there would be the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, where in Roman times, a group called the Areopagus Council would convene on religious educational affairs and exercise control over lecturers that would come in and try to maintain the public interest there with order and morality and so forth. And now, of course, all of this is under Roman rule and Athens is still a center in Paul's day for education and philosophy and art and music. Remember centuries earlier, it was the home of Socrates, the great philosopher, and his student later on, Plato, and his student, Aristotle, and then, of course, the philosophers Epicurus and Zeno. And even in Paul's day, Athens was the home of the world's greatest university, and it was also a religious mecca for pagan idolatry. What a perfect place to invade the kingdom of darkness with the glorious light of the gospel of Christ. So let's see what unfolds here. First of all, let's focus on the blasphemy of idolatry. Notice in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. Provoked is a term in the original language that means to provoke to wrath. To irritate, to stimulate someone to intense anger. And why was he so infuriated? Because the city was full of idols. Now, I can hear it. I can hear it well from the mouths of many in our culture. Why can't we just be tolerant of others? Let, let's just live and let live. 
People have different ideas and they worship different gods, but ultimately they're all worshiping the same God and all of that stuff. Why can't we be tolerant? Why the indignation here? Why is he so provoked to wrath? Dear friends, the answer is simple. Because we are united to Christ, those of us who are believers, we are united to God through Christ and therefore we hate what he hates. And God hates idolatry. Idolatry is a blasphemous wickedness because it robs God of his glory. God has forbidden idolatry. In Deuteronomy 5, 7, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Let me remind you of what idolatry looks like, according to the Bible, because you might say, boy, I'm glad I'm not an idolater, but you just might be. Idolatry includes bowing down to images, worshiping images, sacrificing to images, worshiping other gods, swearing by another god, speaking in the name of other gods, looking to other gods, serving other gods, worshiping the true God by an image, worshiping the true God in hypocrisy, worshiping the true God falsely by redefining him or attributing to him that which is not true, worshiping angels. Worshipping celestial objects, worshipping demons, worshipping dead men, in other words, saints, setting up idols in the heart. In fact, dear friends, as we study the word of God, we see that anything that distracts us from loving and serving the true and the living God or anything that we love and serve or want more than him is idolatry. And these things are an abomination to God. And ultimately, it constitutes false worship because all of this will lead a person to abominable sins. For this reason, the Spirit of God tells us through John in Revelation 21, verse 8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, friends, anyone that truly loves God will be zealous for his glory and will therefore be infuriated with any form of idolatry. For the most part, I'm kind of an easygoing guy, but I get absolutely livid when I see God redefined, when I see God especially in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ being redefined into this newly invented Jesus of our day that winks at sin. This newly invented Jesus that supposedly suffered and died an agonizing death on the cross so that we could be healthy, wealthy and wise, so that we could be successful. Those types of things are so wrong A.W. Tozer speaks poignantly to this issue, and I quote, Perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. The long career of Israel demonstrates this clearly enough, and the history of the church confirms it. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down. For any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God, end quote. So being provoked to anger by 
this idolatry. Paul reigns in his rage. And in verse 17, it says that he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Now, obviously, word gets around about this character, Paul, that is preaching publicly. In verse 18, we read, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? This would be the same reception that I would get or you would get if I were to go and speak the truth at Vanderbilt University or at Harvard or at MTSU or at any of our any of our universities and colleges in the land. Now, who are these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers? Well, Epicureanism was founded by Epicurus, and they basically believed, and this is what he taught, that man's highest good is pleasure. And pleasure was really interpreted as freedom from disturbance or pain. And they believed in the gods, but they thought that gods really didn't intervene in the affairs of men. And so you could kind of go ahead and live in, in any way that brings pleasure. And at death, we just merely cease to exist. There's no afterlife. By the way, this is basic American philosophy. This is kind of how most people think, except there's one difference. In American philosophy, everybody goes to heaven. Have you noticed that? Everybody seems to go to heaven. Well, Stoicism was a little different. It was founded by Zeno, who was a Phoenician philosopher. And he taught that people should be free from passion unmoved by joy or grief, and basically submit without complaint to, uh, to things that come along in their life. And the greatest virtue in life would, would be self-mastery. And the ultimate goal in life would be to feel nothing. Boy, that sounds exciting. Sign me up. I thought the people that felt nothing were dead. And basically, these people would be dead spiritually, spiritual cadavers, because when you feel nothing, dear friends, one of the things that you won't feel, unfortunately, is guilt. And guilt is something that God gives to a man to drive him to the Savior. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Satan doesn't care what you believe as long as it's a lie. And there's all there's a smorgasbord out there today. I mean, just think about it. There's people that teach that God is dead, that there's no God, that that, uh, for example, we have the, this whole theory of evolution, that we we were just the product of random chance. And then you've got others that say, well, no, God is in everything. And we have all the animal rights people and all of the tree huggers and all of this type of thing going on. And then you've got others that say that, you know, we're all part of God and others say, no, 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 God is, he, he's, he's up there, but he's learning. He, he basically reacts, he's not sovereign. And then others will say, well, you know, we all worship the same God, only by different names. And then there's those who believe that God is kind of up there, but he's distant and he's a bit stingy. But if you learn the proper formulas, you can get him to release some of those goodies out of his hands and he will make you prosperous and so on. In fact, if you were to take a hundred people today and ask them to define the meaning of life or to define God, you'd get a hundred different answers because for the most part, 
people do not derive their understanding of these truths from any spiritual authority other than themselves. And that's why many people, when they hear the word of God teach, they find it boring. They find it frustrating. And it certainly confronts their own ideas that they have made up in their hearts or maybe been taught by their parents or whomever. And they don't want to hear the truth. So these philosophers who had a corner on the truth, they say to him, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Idle babbler. It's interesting in the original language. Spermologos. It means seed picker. Seed picker. It gives you the idea of a chicken or a guinea. We've all seen chickens and guineas in our farmyards. They walk around and they just, you know, always making silly little noises, picking at seeds. That's the idea here. Who is this? This moron, shall we say, that's just wandering around aimlessly picking at seeds. This mindless ignoramus, this bird brain, picking around and squawking and making noise. And then in verse 18, he goes on and says, others are saying he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then there's a parenthesis that Luke gives us. It says, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. You've got to remember, they couldn't go to the malls like we do and entertain themselves. They couldn't go to the theaters and watch a movie or whatever. And many times what they would do is they would go and they would listen to philosophers and religious lecturers speak about various things. Reminds me of what Paul later said in 2 Timothy 3, 6, talking about these false teachers. He says that they enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. In 1 Timothy 4, he described these as doctrines of demons. And he warned that we should have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. But this is what was going on. This was the sport of the day. But notice now the power of the gospel to draw a crowd and to save those who will believe. In verse 22, we read that Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now here, dear friends, we see Paul confront the blasphemy of idolatry with the glorious truth of the gospel. And he's going to do so by confronting them with two truths. One, the nature of God, and then secondly, the revelation of God. So this leads us to the second observation of this text, namely the nature of God. And I want you to notice that Paul starts where they're at, philosophically, religiously. They believed in the supernatural. So he begins there with this unknown God that they worship in ignorance. And he points them to five characteristics of God's nature. First of all, notice verse 24. He begins by pointing them to God as the creator. It says, the God who made the world and all things in it. Now, that's where he starts. Isn't that interesting? You see, they know this to be true. 
In fact, everyone knows that this is true, that God made the world and all things in it. You say, well, what about the atheist? What about the evolutionist? They, they don't believe that. Well, they won't admit it, but ultimately they do believe that. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, everyone knows this because in Romans 1, verse 19, God tells us that that which is known about God is evident within every man, for God made it evident to them. And in verse 20, he says, it's for this reason that every man is without excuse. You know, God does not have to prove his existence. It's everywhere you look. It is obvious. And every rational person knows that every effect must have a cause. In philosophy, this is called the cosmological argument. And this is what Paul uses here. Something had to initiate or cause the first cause that made the first effect. In fact, we read in Hebrews 3, 4, an affirmation of this very principle. It says every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, the skeptic will say, well, yes, but 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 no one's ever seen God. Well, that's true. We haven't seen him. No one's ever seen him in spirit. Nobody's seen him in all of his glory. But according to what John tells us in John 1:18, indeed, no man has seen God at any time. But he says the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. In other words, we see God through he who has explained him, namely through Jesus. You see, all that Jesus is. All that Jesus did reveals the essence of the triune God, which, of course, also requires faith to believe. That's why in Hebrews eleven six we read without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So that's where a person must begin. You've got to understand that he is now. It should be no mystery that most people reject what they know to be true about God as creator. Especially the fact stated in Colossians 1.16 that that includes the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where a lot of people really get upset. But we read there in Colossians 1.16 that by him, referring to Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Now, it's interesting if you read the scientists and the educators and the philosophers who believe in Darwin's theory of evolution, which, by the way, is the only religion allowed in our schools and colleges and universities today. You will quickly realize that their hatred of creationists. Go far beyond professional disagreement. They go far beyond a spirited debate. But rather they descend into a seething cauldron of violent aggression. Why is it that they hate that so much? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 1, it's because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know that they acknowledge that there is a creator they must also acknowledge that we need to know him and obey him and serve him. And that goes against their nature. It's fascinating as technology and scientific discovery advance. Intelligent design increasingly becomes the only viable explanation. It's amazing. I was reading about bacteria not too long ago. 
Then I learned that many bacteria like Salmonella and Streptococci propelled themselves with what they would call miniature motors. And this is equivalent to a car traveling 150 miles per hour in liquid. And these little motors rotate up to 100,000 revolutions per minute. And these motors operate through electrical charges that flow from protons. Now, I'm giving you all of this as if I understand it. I don't. But I have read it and I'm going to trust the scientists that do. And they tell me that each shaft of these little bacteria rotates a bundle of whip-like flagella that acts like a propeller. And these motors have intricate sensors and control mechanisms that cause them to start and stop. And I, I saw them in this, in this one little DVD that I was looking at. They can go reverse. They can change directions instantly. Now, I want you to catch this. Eight million of these motors would fit in the circular cross section of a human hair. Eight million. And evolutionists tell us that bacteria were one of the first forms of life to evolve because they are so simple. My, that's a joke. Let me tell you what God's reaction is to that type of idiocy. In Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, he says through the Apostle Paul, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here's how he explains them. Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So Paul begins here by describing the unknown God who is knowable as the creator God. But secondly, he describes him as Lord. Notice in verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Lord is kurios in Greek. It means master. It means sovereign ruler. He is the one who rules his universe with sovereign authority. And therefore, because he is creator, because of his utter transcendence and lordship, it is utter folly to think that he, as Paul says, dwells in temples made with hands. Again, here's the logic. Since he is creator, since he is the master of his creation, we better know him and love him and serve him. It's interesting, by the way, to note that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the term kurios, master, lord, which is the same term that Jesus used to interpret himself. And the Septuagint uses Kyrios to interpret Yahweh in the Old Testament, which is the divine name of God. And it's interesting, therefore, that the implication is that Jesus is Lord. This is what he's telling them. Ultimately, Jesus is Lord. 
So he's creator, he's Lord. Thirdly, he's the ultimate source and sustainer. Notice verse 25. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And we know that, don't we? Paul has said this, for example, in 1 Timothy 6, 17. God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And James tells us in James 1.17, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. And so, indeed, he gives to all life and breath. And breath, and he says, and, and all things. And the implication here is that he is the sustainer of life, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And we know this, don't we, in Colossians 1.16. All things have been created by him and for him. And in verse 17, it says, and in him, all things hold together. As a footnote, there has been a fascinating discovery of laminins. Maybe you've seen this in the scientific research. Laminins are the cell adhesion molecules. It's a family of proteins that kind of glue our cells together. And it's fascinating when you look at the laminins, you will see that they are in the shape of a cross, like the cross that our Lord hung upon. And when I think about this, I'm reminded of Hebrews 1, 3, where we read that Jesus is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. Think of that, dear friends. Every atom in the universe was created by him, and he is the one that holds them all together. Bottom line, what Paul is telling them and what the Word of God teaches to us is that the Lord Jesus Christ is our creator, our sustainer, and he has made every human being with such staggering complexity that scientists are just now beginning to scratch the surface of how we are made. I'm utterly fascinated with it. Again, if you will indulge me with another scientific illustration Biologists tell us that there are 100 trillion cells in the human body. Now, how they can count them, I don't know, but I will trust them. 100 trillion cells in the human body and that there are 46 segments of DNA in most cells. And we know we get 23 from our mother and 23 from our father. And, all, and, and that determines who we are as people, everything about us. And they tell us that if the DNA in one of your cells, now count it, one, if the DNA in one of your cells were uncoiled and connected and stretched out, it would be about seven feet long and have enough info to fill a library of 4,000 books. That's just one cell. But they said if the DNA of the whole body were stretched out and placed end to end, it would go from here to the moon more than 500,000 times. Indeed, as the psalmist has said in Psalm 139, 14, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. They tell us that the DNA in our body in book form would fill the Grand Canyon 75 times. It's a lot of information. And we go from the micro to the macro that I've already talked about. That it is the Lord Jesus that hung the earth in the precise place in our galaxy for complex life forms to exist. And for us to be able to observe 
the universe through the solar eclipse and for discovery to take place. It is the Lord Jesus, therefore, who maintains the gravitation necessary to keep the solar system in its orbit. As I think about it, we read that the earth spins on its axis at a thousand miles an hour at the equator and it travels in a 580 million mile orbit around the sun at about a thousand miles a minute. Can you imagine what it takes to hold that together? Not to mention to hold all of our cells together. So he speaks of the creator, the Lord, the ultimate source and sustainer. Fourthly, the sovereign, the one who providentially orders all things. Verse 26, and he made from one, referring to Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries and the boundaries of their habitation. So he's saying that from the first man, Adam, all the peoples of the world have descended. He's saying that our sovereign God is the one who has orchestrated the existence of all of the peoples of the earth, of every nation. He is the one who establishes the territory that they will inhabit it, inhabit. He will. He is the one who orders the length of their existence. Indeed, our sovereign God is the one that determines the rise and the fall of great civilizations. Daniel, too, gives vivid descriptions of this very thing. I read recently that amongst the 28 most recent civilizations, the average lifespan is 305 years. And when you read the things that cause those civilizations to civilizations to die, you will see that they are precisely a mirror image of what's happening in the United States of America. Is there any is there any other reason why? The United States is not mentioned in Bible prophecy. It's hard to know how much longer we will last, but we are certainly on the demise. And it's interesting that none of the none of those civilizations ever anticipated that they would fall. So Paul describes to them this unknown God. Verse 27. Why? So that they should seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And again, friends, here is the the essence of all that Paul is saying. This transcendent, unknowable God is knowable. Our creator God is both, catch this, transcendent and personal. And in verse 28, referring to the Cretan poet Epimenides, Paul says, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. And then Paul adds, for we also are his offspring. So Paul is saying he's not far from us. Look around in natural revelation and in creation. You see him. And if you want to know his character, listen to him in the word that he has given us. Listen to your conscience that screams his existence. And your need to worship him, as the psalmist said in Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who will call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. What a wonderful promise and a wonderful truth. 
So Paul confronts them with the nature of God and then moves finally to the revelation of God. This is our third point in the little outline. The revelation of God. And here we see the revelation of God being spoken by God's messenger, the Apostle Paul. Notice in verse 29, being then the offspring of God. In other words, here the rubber's going to meet the road. Here's what we ought to do. First of all, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. He's overlooked the times of ignorance. In other words, he's postponed judgment in his mercy. But here's what we need to do now. Here's what God God requires. He requires that we repent of our sins and cry out to Christ for salvation. And he says, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. In other words, a day of judgment's coming. He is going to judge the world in righteousness through a man, capital M, referring to Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. It's as if Paul is saying, ladies and gentlemen, the proof is in. We see God in creation and now you hear his word revealed to you. There is a day of judgment coming and the judge will be a righteous judge, a man that he has appointed. And the way that you can know that indeed he is the one that God will use is he is the one who was raised from the dead. The proof is in. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius the Areopagite. Isn't it interesting that one of the men in the Areopagite court believes, as well as a woman named Damaris and others with them. Indeed, he is saying that you have got to believe in Jesus. He is the man. As we read earlier in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So, the question to you, dear friends, this morning is, will you bow before him as Savior and Lord? Or will you reject him and someday bow before him as judge and executioner? I close with this story. Not too long ago, I was witnessing to a man whose life and family and even health was an absolute total disaster. And his response to the gospel was this, quote, I just can't buy the idea that Jesus is the only way and everyone else is going to hell. In fact, I'm not even convinced that the Bible is true. In fact, I'm not even so sure that there is a God. And he went on to say that I want nothing to do with a God that sends people to hell. And I don't think that is the true God, assuming that he even exists. So I'll just take my chances, he's told me. And I remember him closing by saying, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. Let me answer that through the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said in John 5, beginning in verse 22, 
For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you for these eternal truths that not only point to your transcendence and your glory, but also point to your love. To think that you would condescend to our lowly estate and reveal yourself to us. That you would disclose to us your character and your plan. And that in your love, you would set forth a plan of redemption. Whereby the Lord Jesus Christ would come and pay the penalty for our sin on a cross at Calvary. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for these truths. And I pray for those who hear them and find them to be ridiculous or boring or in any other way, find them to, to be something not worth hearing. Lord, I pray that you will make them miserable until they see their need for the Savior. And I pray that by your grace, you will cause them to repent and give them the gift of faith. Lord, I pray that all that we have learned here today will cause us to exalt you more in our lives and be more committed to serving you and sharing the glorious gospel boldly as Paul did with others that we come in contact with. Thank you for these truths. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.